Welcome to the Vineyard Cleveland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For further information and other resources, please visit vineyardcleveland.org. So I wanted to start with an exercise, if you would indulge me. And the exercise is this. I want you to think about an area or areas or a scenario in your life that feels hopeless. Where does it, off to a right start, just think about something in your life that feels hopeless. Think about something, an area, maybe a relationship, a scenario that feels like there is no hope. And I want you to think of a concrete thing. How many of you, hands, how many of you have that when I say? Okay, there are still a few of you with your hands not raised, so we'll wait. We'll just kind of wait. I can guide you through it if that's all right. Uh, maybe, maybe uh, you know, you think about it like you don't know what it would take to shift this thing in your life. You're, you're not even sure there's anything that maybe you could do or anyone else that could move this thing. Does everybody, okay, hands, who has it in their life? Okay. All right. Okay, keep that in mind. Keep that in your mind as we journey through real hope. It may be a societal thing, you know, just the frustration of living in the world that we live in. It could be very personal to you, what you're experiencing uh, right now, that thing that just won't budge, where there's just no hope in your life. There's places that feel hopeless to me. You know, none of us are alien to it. We all feel hopeless at some point in our journey, at multiple points in our journey. I love this quote. Jason's going to kill me. It's from one of my favorite authors, Henry Nouwen, and it's just so true when we talk about hope. And Henry Nouwen says this about hope. Optimism is the expectation that things, the weather, human relationships, the economy, the political situation, and so on, will get better. Hope is the trust that God will fulfill God's promises to us in a way that leads us to true freedom. The optimist speaks about concrete changes in the future. The person of hope lives in the moment with the knowledge and trust that all of life is in good hands, in God's hands. Isn't that beautiful? I love the Bible. The Bible tells us the truth. God tells us the truth through his word. It tells an authentic reality of the world. And it's true, excuse me, that we use the word hope today in a drastically different way than the Bible uses the word hope, if you think about it for a minute. We think about the definition or the meaning of the word hope with things like this. We hope that the Browns win today. Is it today? Do they play the Buccaneers today? We hope that our boss is not grumpy when we go into work tomorrow. We hope that the sun will miraculously (laughs) appear in the sky in December in Ohio and Cleveland. We hope for that. And these aren't bad things to hope for, are they? Very good things to hope for, but we use the word hope in a drastically different meaning than the Bible does. We use it in in the sense of an anticipated outcome. We hope that something works, oh, not yet. (laughs) 
we hope, we hope for an anticipated outcome that works favorably towards us, yes? That's what we mean when we say we hope for something in our day and age. You know, there's this thing of anticipated outcome that's positive towards us, we wait for it, and then we get rewarded. That's what we mean when we say we hope for something. And we do this everywhere. If I could only get out of, make it out of high school. And then once you get out of high school, you're like, if I could only make it through college, if I could only get that job, if I could only get married, if I could only find peace in my marriage, if I could just have a little bit more money, if I could only have that technology uh, thing that will change my life, if only I could have that, then things would be better in my life. And here's the problem with that way of thinking. The problem with that way of thinking is that anticipated outcomes never pay off. They only lead to more anticipated outcomes. If you ask anyone here, maybe who's a little bit further along in their journey, they will tell you, I mean, it's supposed to be about hope this morning. I'm sorry. It doesn't get better when you graduate high school. Sorry. Some of you are like, man, high school really sucked for me. Middle school, maybe it was better back then. But it doesn't get better after high school. Things just get more and more complex. The rub here is that God has designed us this way. I believe God has designed us to anticipate things to happen, to, to desire more from life than what we're experiencing. That's where the tension is, right? But these designs get corrupted by all kinds of counterfeits. Short-sighted, weak, half-hearted hopes. And those of you who have lived on planet Earth for a while know that those things never work. They never satisfy. They never fulfill us. And they just lead to more anticipated outcomes. It, think about it. If it's in the context of relationships, how many of you know that people will let you down and let you down continuously? They will let you down. They will betray you. If they did it to Jesus, they'll do it to you. The only person we can hope in, again, in the context of relationships here, the only person we can put our trust in not to betray us or not to abandon us, or not let us down, is the person of Jesus. He's the only, there's what, 8 billion people on the planet right now? He's the only one. <clears throat> Don't listen to Rick Ainsley. Don't get Rick rolled. Never gonna give you up. Never gonna let, Jesus is the only one who can sing that song in authenticity. <laughs> He's never going to run around. He's never going to desert you. <laughs> there you go. You guys are getting it. <laughs> Just let that heaviness kind of lift off. There we go. It's good. 
So those things don't work. And uh, what I wanted to do through the course of the series is show you uh, a series of four videos. This one is uh, on hope. They're all put out by this wonderful organization called The Bible Project, who we just love and uh, the Vineyard USA, uh, Vineyard USA has done a uh, partnership with over the years. And so I want you to check this out. This biblical, this is great. You guys are going to love it. Um, the biblical definition of hope. Let's check this out. Jesus in the resurrection was a foretaste of what God had planned for the whole universe. In Paul 
southward, it can hope that creation itself will be liberated from slavery to corruption into freedom when God's children are glorified. Mm. So Christian hope is bold, waiting for humanity and the whole universe to be rescued from evil and death. And some would say it's crazy, and maybe it is. But biblical hope isn't optimism based on the odds. It's a choice to wait for God to bring about a future that's as surprising as a crucified man rising from the dead. Christian hope looks back to the risen Jesus in order to look forward. And so we wait. That's what the biblical words for hope are all about. So good, right? How good is that? Gosh, I love that. Um, tension, hope in the tension, like a cord being pulled tight. There's, these words mean so much that it's not some, hope isn't some ethereal game that we like place a bet on that it works out in our favor. You know, like all the positive, how many have been to business seminars? Any business seminar people out there, if you believe it, you can do it. You know, your attitude determines your, what is it, altitude? I, yeah, all of those positive thinking slogans. You know, biblical hope is not like that. And these positive attitude slogans, they may be serving us in the short term in some capacity. I guess there's nothing wrong with believing those things. But they don't really ground us in reality. And here's the reality. The truth is, is that reality is hard. It's hard. Think about outside of the United States for just one minute. And how rare, you will rarely come across an optimistic tilt in the world. Even if this isn't true for you, it's true for millions upon millions of people today. You know, the offering that we receive today, the way we give that money away or use it on behalf of the poor, it's in obedience to what scriptures call us as believers to do. It's on behalf of those who have lost hope. That's why we place such a huge emphasis on seeds of hope. To see the people that the world doesn't see, that's, that, who are invisible to the world, who are on the margins of society. Picture for a moment just leaving the United States for a minute. <clears throat> you could go anywhere. And you travel to some country far away. Maybe, maybe it's a country in Africa. Maybe it's Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. Maybe it's uh, Delhi in India. And you pick up a, an Uber or a cab driver and you say, hey, take me to the place with the least hope in the city. And he takes you to that place. What you will see are people there who don't have the luxury of viewing their life in an optimistic tilt. Like where, like where is optimism in that way of life? For folks who live on less than a dollar a day. By no choice sometimes, most times, most times, by no choice of their own, 
other than the fact that they were born in a certain time and in a certain place, puts them further back than anyone else in the room this morning. Automat, like, bam. They're, like, where's, where's the optimism in that, in living in that way? And that's why the Bible references the poor in relation to hope so often. And so I'm using this analogy to kind of draw out the true meaning of hope. The Bible references the poor all of the time in relationship to hope. In Psalm 9, 15, and 16, we read that the nations have fallen into the pit they have dug. Their feet are caught in the net they have hidden. The Lord is known by his acts of justice. The wicked are ensnared by the work of their hands. The wicked go down to the realm of the dead, all of the nations that forget God. But God, check it, will never forget the needy. The hope of the afflicted will never perish. God, you see that? God will never forget. God sees the needy. What we see working out here, just as a snippet, and all over the Old and New Testament, is that powerful people make and shape the world so that others are expendable to them. But God says here, he sees those people you call expendable. God fights on their behalf, and what we read here is that he will make things right. Eventually, God will set the world to rights. Like, he will balance, like he's going to balance the scales so that there is no more hunger. There is no more injustice. And yes, that there is no more death, ever. Check out Isaiah 10. Here's another one. Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. What will you do on the day of reckoning when disaster comes from afar? To whom will you run for help? Where will you leave your riches? Get that? Robbing the fatherless? And what, what God is trying to say here through the prophet Isaiah is that you think you've gotten away with something. You think you've hidden it from the eyes of the Lord. But God is saying that one day the scales will be balanced. Where will you leave your riches, God says. And yet, we live in this tension. We live in the tension where it doesn't seem like God is making things right. And yet, this is why God's people know what's coming. So we live as if that future were true now. We're kingdom people, yes, Vineyard Cleveland? So though we look out and we see all of this going on, that's the challenge, to see how God sees. It's not hidden from your eyes. 
You can see in plain sight. So we are to live, the challenge is to live as if that good future was true right now in Cleveland, Ohio. And that's where it's tough. And there's so much tension because we look around and it doesn't seem like he's making things right. This is why, as believers, we care for, we serve, we see those who are on the margins that we believe, like we have the audacity to believe that we're the actual hands and feet of Jesus walking around. Like it's our ministry to serve the poor. You see the tension there? Yet, through the biblical narrative, we are aware that we need the exact same hope in our lives. Even God's people have to acknowledge that we need this hope as well. Not just the poor, not just those we serve, but we need it for ourselves. The same hope. Psalm 130 says, If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than the watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. I love how raw and honest this is, whether it's David or another psalmist, how honest this is about our need for hope. It's not just the poor who need hope, it's us as well. And this tension that the psalmist draws out in waiting for the Lord. You know, depending on which uh, biblical tradition or church history you come from, hope is not just related to injustice, but it's related to our personal mess as well. And different biblical traditions or different church upbringings will emphasize one or the other. Here's the great news. (laughs) Well, we'll see if it's great. But that the Bible, that the God of the Bible cares about both. He cares both about the, the social injustice that's going on in our world today and how the poor are oppressed, the fatherless, the widow, the orphan. And he also cares about our own personal mess as well, simultaneously at both, both and, at the same time. Because here's the truth, on our best day, we're not good enough. Even the good things that we try to do for the poor and serving the poor are still, like Scripture says, filthy rags before the goodness of God. Even the best things that we do are stained with something of sin. Just to get real honest today. Our very best is pretty bad. And here's the kicker. Let's let's just bring it all the way down, is that the world is way more broken than you ever imagined. You guys, it's so broken. 
what that implies about our role in the world is that you and I are more likely, if you just stop and think about it, that we're more likely to be crushed by the cycle of how the world works than to actually change it. What? That if we were attempt to like take a hammer to that thing and try to like make it <laughs> make it right, to make it work, that we're more likely to be crushed in the way that the world works. And some of you who have been around the world for a while and stuck in the systems of the world know exactly what I'm talking about. It's crushing. It's crushing. Here's the good news. That even when the world is more broken than you could ever imagine, that Jesus will make all things new again. And that's what we find in Christmas. That's where hope is. The strangest, unexpected place. That's where we find true biblical hope. Even the setting with which Jesus was born into. How many of you would like to... Let's just take a survey. How many of you would like to switch places with a, with a person living in, in the first century under Roman Empire? Anybody want to do that? You, you would if you were on the side of the Romans, but if you were a first century Jew, you would never want to switch places with that person. The persecution with which, they, the oppression with which they lived under, these are the circumstances, this is the geopolitical arena in which Jesus is born into. In the middle of nowhere, under an oppression, uh, uh, um, an oppressive regime. When God comes in the flesh, this is why, when God comes in the flesh in the person of Jesus, that these passages are just screaming with hope. Both societally, for everybody, and for us personally. Let's look at Mary's song. In Luke 1, Mary said, or sang, or both, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with His arms. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. Does this sound familiar? Like the Old Testament passages that we just read? So she's talking societally now. He's bringing hope. They're just packed with hope. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he's lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, 
but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to his fathers. Societally and personally, that he's going to change the state of the people and he's going to rescue his people through the coming of Jesus. In Luke 2.25, Simeon, who's a prophet, is promised that he will see the birth of the Messiah before he dies. So he's just hanging out in the temple. Here's Simeon, the prophet, in Luke 2.25. There's a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who is righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the customs of the law required. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, check out what he says here, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now uh, dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen, he's holding the child. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Isn't that beautiful? As he's holding Jesus. So there's both the societal aspect and this personal mess element that Jesus is the hope of salvation and that he's making all things new. And yet we look around today and we go, hmm, I don't really know if that uh, happened. <laughs> like the, the early, right? Like the early church was persecuted. Like, like thousands of Christians who followed the hope for salvation were put to the sword. In like two centuries, like thousands of them. And Israel wasn't relinquished from Roman rule. You know, they were still under Roman rule. And today the poor, we're called to, to care for the poor because they'll always be with us. Like there's still people who are hungry. There's still people who are uh, trafficked. There is still slavery in our, in our day and age. Like, we're not quite sure if that really happened. Did that, did that actually happen? Because I thought, Jesus, you were supposed to be the hope for salvation. Like, did you do it? I mean, you died and you rose again uh, from the grave, but it wasn't, he, he came in the way that we didn't expect him to come. But he did what was necessary to create hope in all of us. To be made new again. Because here's, here's the truth that we live in the same moment, moment as Simeon stood. Like we haven't progressed past that moment yet. Like we're, we're still in that same moment. Waiting. As Simeon waited to hold baby Jesus... We wait and stand in that in-between time. And that's frustrating and requires us to wait. Here's the key. And this is the whole, this is the whole kit and caboodle right here. If you get nothing else, get this. Is that hope, true biblical hope, is not in an anticipated outcome, but it's in a person. It's in the person of Jesus Christ. So whatever it is... 
it was like a couple minutes ago. When I ask you to think about something, remember that? Think about something hopeless in your life? It's just like five minutes ago. <laughs> my, my, here, here's my hunch, is that the thing that made you feel hopeless, that thing, you know, is there some form, like a way that it should be, that it isn't, that you're not sure it could happen that way? How, how does it change? How does it change now if you rely on the character of God more than an anticipated outcome? This is the hope that's offered in the person of Jesus. The promise that he will never leave or forsake you. The promise that he will send his spirit to comfort you to counsel you, to lead you and guide you through that thing. That's true biblical hope. It's not found in an outcome, whether that thing works out or not. It's found in the person of Jesus Christ alone. In the midst of that thing that doesn't seem to change. That's the good news, that real hope isn't tied to an outcome, but to our transformation. It makes our hearts, it makes, real hope makes our hearts different in the middle of whatever we're experiencing. That we, that's hope, you see, that, that we can change, in the, no matter what we're facing, that we can change, that we can grow through it. That's real hope. No matter if that person you're praying for gets healed or does not get healed, that we're different because of it, because we're relying on the character of God to see us through and not our circumstances working on our behalf. How, you know, if you've lived in this world for any amount of time, how many of you are aware that not everyone wants what God wants? Not everybody, it's just, it's just the truth. Not everybody wants what he wants for their life. The truth is, most people don't. Most people don't want it. It's not just like a few. It's like most don't. Most people think, here's how most people think about it. Most people think about, what can I do to make this a little less uncomfortable for me? What, how, can I, how can I manage my circumstances or barricade from the troubles of life so that my situation would improve just a little bit better? And we might extend that to our kids on good days. <laughs> how many of you know I just described you? <laughs> just describe me. How can we make this better for me? If you and I, get it, if you and I don't intentionally, with great intention, resist this way of thinking, if we, if we don't turn and say, no, it's better to obey the Lord with my hope fixed on his character, no anticipated outcome will ever fulfill you 
Nothing will satisfy you. The gaping hole of the human heart is infinite. They surveyed millions of Americans, wealthy, middle class, poor. How much money would it take to make you satisfied? Do you know what the average answer was? It wasn't dependent on where they fit in the, in the social strata. Just $2,500 more dollars a year. Right? Just, just out of reach. Just, the, the hole in the human heart is gaping. And unless we intentionally turn our hearts to say, I'm, I'm going to resist that. Resist the urge to like make things better for myself. And say, nope, I'm going to obey the Lord no matter what. Nothing will ever fulfill. Nothing will ever satisfy. There's nothing under the sun that will satisfy that desire, that need in your life, in my life. Nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Because here's the thing is that even those who get healed, die. You ever wonder how many times Lazarus died? <laughs> like, he di- like he died, and then Jesus rose, like he, he brought Lazarus back from the dead, so he was alive again. And then did he die before Jesus went to the cross? Check it, because if he died before Jesus went to the cross... He dies, then Jesus goes to the cross, and then when Jesus rises from the grave, it says that there were like thousands in Jerusalem who walked out of the grave. So then like, you know, Lazarus could have been one of those people. He was risen again, and then he died again. (laughs) You know? So even those who get healed end up dying. The most dramatic miracles will never fulfill the hope with which God can. Even, but here's the hope, is that even Jesus, it's a pretty sure bet. If, if you're a betting individual, it's a pretty sure bet that to place, to place your bet on this Jesus. Because he says that he knows the way through even death itself. He's like the only one who knows the way. You're not going to find it in Siri or in Google Maps, like the way, the coordinates, like Jesus has them. He's the only one. He says, even through death, I know. I know that way through. He's the only one. I love this. This is from, we'll we'll close up shop here. This is from uh, Walter Brueggemann, who's like one of the uh, foremost, I believe, Old Testament scholars in the world. And he's just amazing. He says this, hope is the conviction against a great deal of data that God is tenacious and persistent in overcoming the deathliness of the world. That God intends joy and peace. 
Christians find compelling evidence in the story of Jesus that Jesus, with great persistence and great vulnerability, everywhere he went, turned the enmity of society toward a new possibility, turned the sadness of the world towards joy, introduced a regime where the dead are raised, the lost are found, and the displaced are brought home again. That's biblical hope. You know who can satisfy you this morning? Jesus can. Jesus can. But we need to fix our hope like in the right place. Like this well, when we we draw from this well, it brings up water. This one never brings up water. We need to fix our hope in the right place. What are you saying? If I put my hope in Jesus, I'll always draw water. My marriage is going to suddenly get better if I put my hope in Jesus? I don't know. Maybe. He does that a lot. He restores marriages, but I don't know. What are you you saying? If I put my hope in Jesus, if I choose to follow Jesus, that I'll suddenly have thousands of dollars in my bank account? Probably not. If I put my hope in Jesus, that my, my loved one who is terminally ill will be healed? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. And on the surface, that sounds uncaring. But if we take a second look at biblical hope, it's actually the most hopeful posture that you can have in this life. It's to put it all on Jesus and say, regardless of the circumstances, no matter what, Jesus, I'm relying on your character to see me through this. No matter what backlash I encounter, What I experience in these relationships, Jesus, you are true to who you say you are. And you have hope for me regardless of the outcome. That's what you get when you put your hope in Jesus. You get him. You get his presence. That's the best thing of all. This Christmas, that hopeless situation... Let's do a little experiment. Man, I got to close. Let's do a little experiment. What if I walked up to you and I said, hey, uh, I'm going to give you $10 million. Let's just 50. You get 50. And all of your problems will disappear. Would you take that deal? Someone says no. Hold on. This is a two-part question. Hey, hold on, hold on. This is a two-part question. Think on that for a moment. Now, what if, what if I made you a deal that um, I would give you $10 million and it would poof, make all of your problems, all of your troubles disappear, but in two days you would die? Would you take that deal? Hands up those who wouldn't take it. Every hand in the room. Why? Why? We've just solved a philosophical argument here this morning. The reason is because you see your life is more valuable, is worth more than $10 million, way more. And you should feel that way. So no amount of resource, do you see what I'm trying to do here? No amount of, re- no amount of resource, earthly resource in your life has the ability to shift problems and just poof, make them disappear. No amount of money, no amount of wealth or power 
back to, fact check me. Back to the, God sees the, God sees you. You think you're hiding something. God sees you. No amount of resource, no amount of money will shift that thing in your life. Only Jesus can help you navigate it. Only Jesus can lead you through it. Because your life is so much more precious and worth so much more than $10 million. That's what we proved this morning. That your life matters and is valued eternally before the Father. He loves you so much that he sends his spirit to help lead you and guide you through the process so that the circumstances aren't transformed, you are. That's the good news. That's what you get following Jesus. You get his presence. Love this. Hope is more than wishful thinking or a burst of consolation or an it's okay it's more than measure, uh, the meaning-making, giving purpose for pain, or even the exit route on the discomfort way. Hope is more than a happy explanation or a metaphor or a mechanism for coping. Hope does not run away. It does not try to get out of what is, but it can be found there always. Real hope is in the dark, in the pit, at the bottom where you never thought you'd be. Real hope doesn't bring a bandage or sympathy flowers or turn on an artificial light. Real hope is gravity. It draws you to where you are for what it is and doesn't rush towards resolution. Real hope isn't away from here or past this or beyond the horizon with the future. We cannot yet see. Real hope is always where you are. And it does not leave. It is not waiting in the place you think you ought to be. This surprising hope, present already, where you least expect, waiting for you to see that wherever you are, it is being born. <laughs>